the gospel according to Luke. Pastor Bill read for us our scripture lesson. Luke chapter 5, 17 through 26 is where we find ourselves this morning. Luke chapter 5, verse 17 through 26. As we continue to walk with Jesus, I love preaching through the gospel accounts. We did John already, we did Mark, now we're in Luke, uh, since I've been here anyway. Uh, And as Jesus just continues to teach and preach and heal, the people have come to him for healing and what we've been seeing and witnessing over these past several weeks during Jesus' Galilean ministry, he's in Galilee, is first and foremost what the angel said that Jesus was going to do at the birth of Jesus, or at least his announcement. Chapter 1, verse 32, Jesus, they said, uh, will be called the Son of the Most High, of the same nature, will be God himself, God's Son. And the Lord God will give to him, that's Jesus, the throne of his father David, who will be a king reigning in David's promise that was given to David in 2 Samuel. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom. The king is coming. His kingdom will have no end. So Jesus performing these miracles that we've been walking with him is showing the world that the king has come. But also in this Galilean ministry that we've been walking with Jesus over these chapters, we see the fulfillment of what Isaiah has spoken in chapter 61, that the Messiah will come and do. If you remember, Jesus, the beginning of his ministry, he's in Nazareth. They hand him, he's at the synagogue, it's Saturday, it's the Sabbath. They hand him a scroll. He unrolls the scroll, gets to chapter 61, which is a miracle in and of itself. I'd probably make a mess of it. And he turns to chapter 61 of Isaiah and he reads, we find this in Luke 4, he reads from Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me, as we get the word Messiah, has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. I'm gonna be a preacher of good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, I'm going to come and set people free, recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. I've come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, his grace. He rolls the scroll back up, hands it to the attendant, sits down and everyone staring at him, and Jesus says, that text, that verse, that what Isaiah said, now has been fulfilled in your hearing, I am here. And Jesus then does what he said he came to do. As we read in, in four, chapter 3, 4, and 5, he immediately, as the king of kings who invaded the world, began demonstrating his power, his authority, as he taught from the scripture. He showed his authority and power over evil spirits, authority and power over sicknesses and illnesses. He's shown his authority and power as the king of kings who invaded human history over the natural order. We saw that with the fish. And last week, we saw the King of Kings proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel, showing his power and authority over creation by healing a man with leprosy. Pastor Chris did a great job, and he said up to that point that when someone who had leprosy would be considered unclean, that whenever the clean touched the unclean, it became unclean. In other words, if you were clean, you touched something that was unclean, you both become unclean. But now for the first time in history, the first time ever in mankind, when the unclean touched the clean, rather than impart uncleanliness, it imparted cleanliness. That which was unclean became clean. And Jesus is telling the leper, he's telling us uh, today as well, 
That when you come into connection with Jesus, you're clean no matter what. He says, I am cleanliness. That's what Jesus is saying. And that is why the series is called Mission to the World. Because we're seeing over and over Jesus healing, redeeming, and rescuing the marginalized, the, the, the outcast, the rejected of his day, making them clean, washing them, and forgiving them of their sins. What a savior, what a redeemer, what a lover of our soul. What a picture and portrait of Jesus so far. We're only in chapter five. Listen to me this to me this morning. There's nothing that you have done, there's nothing that's done to you that God cannot and will not cleanse, forgive, redeem, and then receive you into his love. Nothing. If you'd only turn from trying to get these things that we so desperately need from created things and turn to our creator who has provided for you and for me the only means of cleansing, the only means of forgiveness, and his name is Jesus. And that's what we see in our narrative this morning as Pastor Bill read it. Jesus is going to now turn up the heat. He's not only demonstrating and declaring his authority and power as the king of kings over, over, over his teaching, in his teaching and, 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 and his healings of illnesses and creation itself and even over leprosy, now we see he's going to make a claim. He's going to make a claim that will, will be the one, really the one single claim that will cause many in Israel to go after him. And all in Israel say crucify him. And nail him to a cross. That claim we will see this morning. Three headings. The community that brings, the Christ that goes after, and the crowd that goes wild. Okay? The community that brings, the Christ that goes after, and the crowd that goes wild. Look with me at verse 17. Interesting, again, Dr. Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, once again, he did this last week, Pastor Chris pointed it out, doesn't tell us exactly uh, uh, what time it is, what, what, what day it is, or where Jesus is. In verse 17, it simply says, one of those days as he was teaching. We know according, uh, from the gospel according to Mark that he was in Capernaum at this time. Actually, I believe he was back at Peter's house. Remember, he was there earlier where he healed his mother-in-law. Peter was married. Healed his mother-in-law of a, of a very high fever in chapter 4. But what Luke wants us to see, what he, what he calls more important, at least in this text, is that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, known as the scribes, had come from all over the villages, look at verse 17, even as far as Judea, Jerusalem. Okay, what, what Luke is saying to you, and he wants us all to see, is, listen, the word is out about this guy, Jesus, the Messiah. The word has gotten out. It's spreading like wildfire. It, it's reached the ears and the men, the shakers and movers of Jerusalem, the center of religious life. This time period with Jesus' ministry has been called the year of popularity. If you know anything about the ministry of Jesus or if you ever heard this before, it's been breaking into, he ministered for three years, the year of obscurity, the year of popularity, and then the year of opposition. But you notice here in this text, things are starting to already get heated up. Because Jesus is about to claim something that no one has claimed and or at least no one has proven he will. And word is getting out about his healing power. Look at verse 17. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Word is getting out. So we find in Capernaum with some men that were there. And they decided they were going to bring their friend, their paralyzed friend to Jesus. Word is out. 
People from Jerusalem are there. Lots of people are coming to Jesus. And they're like, look, we're going to bring our buddy who's been stuck on a mat or a stretcher or a bed for Jesus to heal. According to the Gospel of Mark, there was five men, one, paraplegic, one paralyzed man, and four friends. And if, I just want you to, Pastor Bill read this scripture, but just try to, if you can, wrap your head around the scene. Imagine it for a minute. Guys are getting together, and they, and, and they say, look, we, I, I hear Jesus is in town. Yeah, I, I believe he's over on such and such street, or such and such block. Hey, man, if we can get our buddy to see him, if we can get our buddy just to get near him, if we can get our buddy just so that Jesus will touch him, he'll heal him. You can see the smiles on everybody's face. Like, yeah, let, let's do it. So they grab each corner of the bed or the mat, four guys, and they carry him to go see Jesus. And as they turn the corner, they're like, ah, oh, the mat down. It's packed. There's line coming out the house. There's a mob around the house. And you can imagine, they're like, now, now what are we going to do? Now what are we going to do? One guy might say, look, man, it's four of us. We could just start knocking guys out. We'll get in there. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't think Jesus will appreciate that a whole lot. And then one guy says, I got an idea. I got an idea. Why don't, why don't we go up on the roof? Why don't we go up on the roof? We dig a hole. We'll rip the roof, and we'll lower our friend in. And the guy's like, yeah, you don't want to knock people out, but we want to rip the guy's roof. That's a great idea, right? I mean, imagine the, the roof starts opening. Now, in those days, in that, in that region, the roofs were, were flat. Um, it was obviously very different than our roofs today. It was constructed of timber. They would lay the timber about three feet apart. Uh, and they would put uh, in between that, uh, parallel to that, they would, they would put um, different kind of sticks and, and uh, you know, just reeds and branches and brushwood and mud and mix it all together, chop straw, and they would lay it side by side, you know, next to each other, parallel, perpendicular, and they would build a roof, sometimes two feet thick with mud and straw and timber. Luke tells us that they let the paralytic down through the tiles. Many times they would, they would put this product on. It was more like a ceramic tile-like product. It's a thick and heavy roof. And in those days, they would have steps that would go outside the roof, outside, outside up onto the roof. On the side of the house, there'd be a staircase going right up on the roof. And it was important in those days uh, to do that because people would regularly gather on the roof. It was commonly a place of, it was, if it was hot during the day, the sun would go down and stay hot in the house, they would sit up on the roof. Many, many people in Israel would celebrate many festivals up on the roof. So in that sense, it was a place of worship as well. So ripping through this roof is, is problematic. It's costly. But these men were going to stop at nothing to get their friend to see Jesus. What, what a glorious, glorious picture of faith lived out in community. A community that brings people to Jesus. Whatever the relationship between these men may have been, some of them could be brothers, we don't know. They loved their paralyzed friend. And if you think about it, no matter what happened that day, whether they just couldn't get in, they couldn't see Jesus, the guy could not get his healing, I will tell you something, that man, that paralytic man, was rich that day. 
He was rich that day. He has something some people never find, and that's loving friends who care. But God was going to do something through his friends. You know, the church doesn't exist for itself, but for the Lord. And fulfilling, and for the fulfilling of his purposes to accomplish God's mission on earth. You know, sometimes I think we need to be reminded. We talk about, we, we, we talk here about it, I'm going to talk about it a little bit later, that we have a mission statement. Churches have mission statements. And, and I think it's good to have a mission statement. We have one. I love our mission statement, actually. But the truth is the church, listen, family, the church doesn't have a mission. The mission has a church. Think about that. One way you think about it is that we own this, and now we're going to declare it. No, 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 no. He owns it, and he's using us to declare it. And that keeps us humble. The missio Dei, the mission of God, the reconciling, restoring, and redeeming of work of God is done through the church as we proclaim and demonstrate his gospel, not ours. We are his, and we are to follow the commands, and the commands of the church is what? To make disciples who make disciples. And that's what these men were doing. They're bringing these four brave men are united in one common goal, and that is I gotta get you to see Jesus. Therefore, the efforts of these friends are, are somewhat of the characteristics of what our mission is today. Missionaries in our community, bringing people to see Jesus. We need to be compassionate as they were compassionate, right? We need to have compassion for broken, hurting people. We need to be committed. Committed to do whatever it takes to get the message out. Compassionate, committed. You know what? We also need to be confident. We need to be confident that God can make a difference. We need to be confident that Jesus can cleanse and make all things new. They all had the same needy friend, the same, the same goals to get that friend to Jesus. They, they shared the same attitude. Whatever it takes, man, we're going to do it. The fact that the friend couldn't walk, that's okay, we'll carry you. The fact that the crowd blocked their access to Jesus didn't stop them. They went around the crowd. The fact that the roof of the house stood between their friend and Jesus, that didn't stop them either. They just took the roof out. The faith was persistent. They were determined. The faith was creative. Faith lived out in community finds a way. Their faith in community also was sacrificial. Let me tell you, somebody paid for that roof. <laughs> they didn't walk away like, oh, hold on, hold on. Come on back here. I'm glad your friend's healed. Fix that roof. Someone has to pay the cost. That's a community that brings. That's a community that brings. I put the slide, let's see, yeah. These men didn't let anything keep them from the mission. What's keeping us from the mission? What's keeping you from the mission? Is there someone in your life that you are willing to go, or maybe you are, you are going to great lengths to show them the gospel, to share with them the gospel, to see your faith lived out in such a way that they find themselves 
at the feet of the Messiah, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. That's a community that brings. Now let's look at the Christ that goes after, verses 19 through 24. Again, imagine the scene. Jesus in this house, it's packed. They're all gathered in the house. Religious leaders are there from all over the place. And Jesus' teaching is probably quiet, listening to his words, and all of a sudden there's a bang. And everybody's like, what was that? (laughs) And the men up on the roof start digging through this roof tiles, mud and timber, and whatever else is getting in their way. Everyone stops and looks around and we're like, what's going on? And all of a sudden, sunlight is shining through the ceiling. And then there's a face looking down. The Lord's got dirt all over him, being underneath the hole. He wipes the dust. And then as the large, as, as the, excuse me, as the hole is getting enlarged, on a concerted effort, four men lower their paralyzed friend down right in front of Jesus. You can only imagine when they rip the hole open, they look, they're like, hey, man, we're right on top of him. That was perfect, you know. <laughs> how, do you, how do you do that? You don't know where he is. Like, open up a hole. He's right there. Perfect. Jesus looks at this, the faith of these men. It says, your faith, it means everybody's faith. Bring, me to, bring him to Jesus. Jesus knows what to do. And all of a sudden, they lower him down and, and right in front of the Lord. And the Lord looks at this man, and they're amazed. he's amazed at their faith. And he says to this paralyzed man, you're healed. Rise up and walk. No, that's not what he said. He says, your sins are forgiven. Perfect passive verb. In other words, he's saying, all your sins have been and complete and will always be forgiven you by me. That's what that verb means. God is doing it, and your sin has been, the abiding state of forgiveness has taken place because of God. No connection to the atoning rituals, he, Jesus circumvents the temple sacrifices. Your sins are forgiven. And the man lying there, who's been lying on his mat for all his life maybe, looks up at Jesus and can't help but think of the commercial Captain Obvious. I mean, who said anything about forgiveness of sins? Everyone in the room, everyone up on the roof knows what we're looking for, and that is to be healed of my paralysis. Who said anything about forgiveness? I'm I'm paralyzed. I have more of an immediate problem. And what Jesus is doing here, what, he, what he's talking about is that his immediate problem of being healed from his paralyzing state is not the greatest problem that he has. No, you don't understand, Jesus. I'm paralyzed. I got more of a problem, more of an immediate thing going on, the man would say. Jesus says, no, you don't. That's the whole point. Don't miss this. Jesus, in love and compassion, is going after this man. Jesus looking at the heart of the man and says, you need more than just your healing. You need to have your sins forgiven. 
The Jewish people in that day believed that no diseased person could heal till all their sins was blotted out. And one famous rabbi said, there is no sick man healed of his sickness until all his sins have been forgiven him. In Psalm 103, talking about the Lord, it said, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases? There was that connection. And they regarded sickness as an effect of sin. There was a real connection between sin and suffering. And as much as we don't like to hear this, that Sometimes that's true. Sometimes that's true. Sometimes disease and sickness is a, is a direct result of God's judgment. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 Corinthians 11, 2 Samuel 24. Sin will wreak havoc on your life. It will wreak havoc on your life spiritually, emotionally, and physically. How do we know that? We read the scripture. King David in his sin, Psalm 32. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away, though my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Now we also know from scripture that not all sicknesses connected are tied to a lifestyle of sin. We know that as well. John chapter 9. The apostles, the, the, the disciples, the apostles are walking with Jesus and they see a man who was born blind. And they passed by him, and the disciples said to him, because that was the prevailing thought, Rabbi, who sinned? Did this man sin because he's blind, or was his parents' sin, second, third, fourth generation, because he's blind? And God, Jesus says to them, it was neither. This man sinned or his parents' sinned, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. In other words, I'm going to show my power and glory and authority by healing him. But this text seems to indicate that Christ's words, what he says, assured that the removal of guilt will take place with real forgiveness. Jesus treats this, this paralytic man as a result of sin in this account. And to forgive the sin removes the consequences. And whether this was directly something he lived, or maybe, maybe it's just living in a fallen sinful world. Right? God did not create this universe in the first cause, Genesis 1 and 2, with cancer and, and, and all the other things going on. All of that is a result of sin. And it's all going to be eradicated when Jesus comes and we have a new heavens and a new earth. We don't know exactly. But either way, don't miss the point. By connecting the miracle Jesus is about to accomplish and pardoning his sin is the clear expression of, listen, Jesus' clear expression of his divinity of his deity. He looked at this man and he says, you think you know what your main problem is in your life, but you don't. I'm not ignoring your, your issues and your suffering, but I want to deal with something more important, more immediate, more critical first. Family, you and I need to realize that the greatest problem in our life is not suffering. It's our sin. It's our sin. Jesus is asking the paralytic, and maybe you this morning, to do what the prophet Samuel said. God told the prophet, do not look at his appearance or his height or his stature. For God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Jesus is going after this man by telling him to go deeper, to look within. What he's saying is by, by simply coming to me and asking me to heal you is not going deep enough. What Jesus is saying is that you have underestimated the depth of your need. And maybe here this morning, and we all have needs. 
We may, have, we may have lots of struggles, maybe some real serious suffering. The greatest issue we all face is our sin and our need to be forgiven of our sins. I really think, and not just from Scripture, but you, and you know this as well, that sometimes getting our immediate needs met, well, let's say Jesus just healed him and he got up. I would, I would imagine at least for a period of time, he would be very excited and thankful. And grateful. I can walk again. If only my kids would turn out all right, I'll be okay. If only my marriage was fixed, I will be okay. But Jesus is saying, no, I have, come, I have not come to meet only the needs that you know you have, the obvious ones, but I have come to meet the needs that are not so obvious to you. Family, this morning, do you know that your sin problem the issue of forgiveness is the greatest, most critical, immediate need that human beings have. Jesus knows that if he heals him, he'll jump and shout. But when the euphoria, when the euphoria you know, subsides, and thankfully he can walk again, he's still not going to be eternally satisfied. Why? Because nothing really and completely and eternally will satisfy the soul until we made right with our God through confession of our sins and repentance and trust in Christ Jesus, period. And that Jesus saying, and that Jesus saying, this is the main purpose I've come. You know, back in John, back in Luke 1, verse 77, John the Baptist, uh, we read from his father, was, his father was prophesying what John the Baptist would do. And it said that John the Baptist is going to come, Baptist is going to come in to give knowledge of salvation to his people. He's going to preach that Christ has come, make way and ready for him. And then it says that he's going to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of God. He's come to forgive us of our sins. And then in verse 21, the religious leaders take issue with him. Now, who are these religious leaders? The religious leaders, the Pharisees are, uh, they actually got their name from uh, an, Arabic, uh, an Aramaic term called separatists. They were, they were the, 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 the separatists, they were the legalists, they were the ones who separated themselves from the world. They, they wanted to keep the nation faithful to the word of God. They wanted to keep, and they, were, they, they spent lots of time developing an elaborate system of traditions and do's and don'ts to prevent anyone from possibly violating the Mosaic law. Josephus, a Jewish historian, says that the Pharisees, um, these separatist ones, they desired to build a fence around the law to prevent it from being violated, and they, they just took off. The scribes are the, are the, legalists, the, the, the legal lawyers of the day, uh, teachers of the law. They studied scripture. They taught, interpreted, and transmitted. They, and these two teams worked together. And make no mistake about it, these religious leaders that had come up from all over the region, especially from Jerusalem, came to see because they heard what that this Jesus was doing. They want to see them for themselves. But let me tell you, as we read the rest of the New Testament, they did not come because they wanted to applaud him. They were coming because they wanted to find something wrong with him. Trick him, catch him, doing something wrong. And when Jesus claimed that he could forgive sins, oh boy, they immediately and vigorously said, who is this? 
Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Their theology was impeccable. They're right. They're right. It's good theology. Sin is an offering against a holy God, a righteous God, and only God has the authority, and only God can truly forgive a sinner. They were right. He may delegate his authority as some representative, but ultimately the, the, the forgiveness of our sins rests upon God himself. Jesus, they claim, is blaspheming. They're mocking God or, or claiming the prerogative that only God has, and if the claims are not true, then he would be blaspheming and a blasphemer. Do you know what Jesus is saying when he says, I forgive you of all sin by this paraplegic that I don't even know? Let me, let me tell you. Let's say Pastor Chris and I and Ricky were all hanging out together. We're in a conference together. And Pastor Chris walks right up to me and <clears throat> gives me one. Blood everywhere. And Pastor, Pastor Ricky walks up to Chris and says, hey, Pastor Chris, I forgive you for punching Lou right in the mouth. <laughs> I'd be like, hold on, hold on. <laughs> Pastor Ricky has no authority to forgive Chris what he did to me. He punched me in the mouth. Jesus says, I forgive you all sin. Your sins are forgiven right now. He's saying all your sins are ultimately against me. Why? Because when we sin, we sin against each other, but ultimately we sin against God. And you know what Jesus is claiming? To be God himself, that his sin, all sin, ultimately is against him. Psalm 51, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, King David said. And when Jesus says, I have the authority to forgive you of your sins, he in essence is saying, I am the one true God. And since all sin is against me, I am and I have the authority to forgive you. This is an unequal, unparalleled claim. Jesus is saying, I am the God of the universe. But as far as they knew, he wasn't. They, and they said, look, you're, you're blaspheming. You deserve death. There's only one problem in their, that part of their theology is that Jesus is the incarnate God. He's the one who lived eternally. He's the one who is the incarnate God, the supreme and infinite awesome God, the second person of the Trinity, one God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Therefore, he has the authority to forgive sinners, and he proves it. Jesus not only acts in power and authority to heal, but he's saying, I have the authority, as he announced, to forgive sins. And then he's like, what are you all thinking about over there? Why do you, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk, verse 24. But that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He says to the man who is paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Now, let me, let me just share with you something. We're going to talk about this as the weeks progress. Son of Man, Jesus said more about himself, that title, Son of Man, than any other title in the Bible. He constantly goes to Son of Man. 26, 25 or 26 times, Luke used the Son of Man as a title for Jesus. 
And I don't think, I don't think that Jesus, I think that Jesus is pointing to what is said in Daniel, okay? Um, I, I don't think he's fully, fully developed. Luke will develop this. We'll talk about it another day. But the title really comes at the end of the day in the final resting place of where Jesus gets that title, Son of Man, just so you know, is from Daniel chapter 7. Look at that with me. In my vision, Daniel's vision, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. Daniel's prophesying this, this, this coming of the son of man with the clouds of heaven. Remember, Jesus will say that. I see the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven, and the religious leaders ripped their, their, their cloak, ripped, ripped their uh, you know, clothing. They understood what Jesus was pointing to this. That's what Jesus is getting to. The Son of Man, coming with the clouds, he approached the Ancient of Days, that's the Father, and led him into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All people, all nations, every man of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. You see, Daniel's saying it's going to come someone. He's going to be the King of Kings, God himself. People will worship him. He'll be given glory and sovereign power and everlasting dominion. That's David's son that promised in 2 Samuel. And when Jesus uses this title for himself, and we'll see him develop this in the months to come, he's saying, I'm the one that Daniel spoke about that came into human history as a human being. And they knew what Jesus was claiming. He was claiming to, in his humanity to be God in the flesh and doing what only God could do, and that is forgive sins. And let me tell you, if you have Jehovah's Witness friends, Muslim friends, um, uh, Mormon friends, this is a great verse. Because only God can forgive sins. And if Jesus forgives sins, he's either God or he's a blasphemer, period. And you know where I stand on that one. And what the Bible has to say. That's the reason they put him to death. They crucified Christ, not because he was loving children. Not because he was healing people and he was doing all those things. Not because he cared about people. They crucified him because he said he was God. And that makes him guilty of blasphemy, unless it's true. Religious knew that, and Jesus asked them a question, and that question still goes unanswered to this day, right? Which is easier, <laughs> to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise up and walk? Now, let's just hit stay here for a second. This is what I think Jesus is saying. It is easier for Jesus in that moment to say your sins are forgiven than it is to heal the man who's laying on a mat. The reason is because who would know? How, how do you know whether it's true or not? He could say your sins are forgiven and on this side of heaven. We don't know that that came true. But if he says to the man, rise, get up and walk, we see everything right in front of us. He's just stood up and he's walking home. So in one sense, it's harder to say rise and walk. And it's easier to claim from the observer's point of view to forgive sins. Now obviously when we look from the perspective of the cross... Forgiveness of sins is much harder. It costs Jesus' life. In order to forgive, in order to offer forgiveness, he had to suffer and die in the bloody agony of the cross. But in the context of this encounter, the harder thing that Jesus to do is say, rise up and walk. But what Jesus does, he takes the easier and the harder thing, and he combines them together. He says, I'm going to rise him. I'm going I'm to heal him. He's going to rise up and walk, and I'm going to connect it to forgiving him of his sins. And healing then will reveal 
his authority to forgive sins. And in the process, think about this. It will declare who Jesus really is. Because if he doesn't rise, if he doesn't walk, Jesus is seen as a fake and a fraud. And he turns to the paraplegic man, gives him three commands. He says, listen, well, get up, rise, pick up your bed, and then what? Go home. And the scripture text tells us immediately he rose, showing the, the, the emphasizing it's, it's instantaneous. Notice these two other words I thought was very interesting. It says immediately he rose before them. In other words, everyone saw it. He wasn't healed in a corner somewhere. He was in the middle of the room. Everyone, all his religious leaders, everyone saw him be healed as he got up and walked right past everyone. Miraculous. And the crowd goes wild. The man picks up his mat and goes home. Walking, showing everyone that day that Jesus has authority over sin, to forgive sin. Family, you will never know you and I will never be forgiven of our sins unless the Son of Man says your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. You will either joyfully pick up your mat and go home, or you will be angry, agitated, and walk away. Family, the gospel, the message of Christ, his claims demand a response. There's no neutrality. The paralyzed man got up and went home glorifying God, doxazo, joyfully singing praises to his God, a new song in his heart as he danced and went home. I mean, can you blame him? One of the things we overlooked is that if he's sitting on a mat and he's laying on a mat for 30, 40, 50 years, who knows how long, you know what his legs would look like, these unused legs? I, mean, I think the medical term is atrophy. Now he has, not only is he healed, automatically healed, he has strength, his legs must have just got the strength it needed and he jumps up and he's praising and exalting and he's reveling in the goodness of God. And at that moment, that paralytic man had his eyes and his heart fixed on Christ as his greatest treasure. Verse 26 tells us uh, that the rest of the crowd was also glorifying God. Look what it says. They were glorifying God as well, but they were also amazed and in awe. The word amaze is interesting. It means to stand out or, or to remove out of its place. It's where we get the word ecstasy. I mean, they were out of their minds. They were losing their minds. Amazed at what was going on. All we know is reverence and fear. And the end of the narrative here makes it clear that when, when Jesus has encountered you and I, and he has forgiven us, forgiven us of our sins, man, we're... Glorifying God. We're glorifying God when our sins have been forgiven, when we've been accepted into his family, adopted as children of God. We are praising him for his salvation. Our mission statement, again, begins with these words. We exist to glorify God by living on mission with him in making disciples. That's what we see is going on. God is glorified when he is seen and treasured, and he can only be seen and treasured when we are forgiven of our sins, when we turn from our sins, trust him as the Savior and Lord. And God has always been about proclaiming his glory. And there is no other place to see the glory of God, the infinite value of God, than at the cross of Jesus Christ. 
It is where the infinite love of God meets the holy justice of God. It's where sin and rebellion was punished, justice was satisfied, love, grace, and mercy extended to sinners like you and me. Jesus becomes our substitute, taking on the the rightful punishment and wrath we deserve so that justice is satisfied at the same time his love is available to all those who repent and turn him. That's the good news, family. That's the gospel. The gospel, the good news, is that God the Father sent God the Son to be the sin-bearing substitute who died on the cross in our place. He would take the wrath of the Father upon himself in order to redeem us back from sin, Satan, death, and hell. The New Testament makes it clear that the best place or the greatest display of his glory is the cross. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, one of my favorite verses. Paul writes to the Corinthian church, if our gospel is veiled, if you can't see the good news of the gospel that I just explained, it is veiled to those who are perishing, they're still in their sin. In their case, the ones that are perishing, that, are, that their eyes have been closed, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing what? The light of the gospel, the good news of Christ, of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. For God said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Can't get any more clear than that. Jesus Christ, who is the gospels, is is the infinite glory of God. His perfect life, his substitutionary death, resurrection displays God's glory, his his intrinsic value, his, his moral excellence. His infinite greatness, preeminence, unsurpassable worth that he has in himself is seen at the cross. And through the gospel, as we come face to face with Jesus and he forgives us of our sins, we turn and trust him. And our sins are forgiven, we bring him glory, treasuring him, declaring him as infinitely valued and worthy above all things. That's how we give him glory in the gospel. That's not something we keep to ourselves. We exist to glorify God by living on mission and making disciples, sharing and demonstrating the gospel. And this last verse here, last part of our verse, it says, we have seen extraordinary things, paradoxes, strange, wonderful, unexpected, unbelievable, marvelous things. They were awestruck with that, what just took place. The Son of Man has authority to forgive sins by healing him. D.L. Block Dr. Bach in his commentary says this, as the paralytic walks, the question becomes, who will walk with him and share the forgiveness? Jesus has pictured fence-sitting is no longer possible given the nature of Jesus' claim, end quote. What will be your response? Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners like you and me. He lived in the flesh. He was fully human to offer To God, the righteous obedience we could not do and the righteous obedience that we owed and he died in our place as our substitute. Offering himself, satisfying the wrath of God against sin, rising from the dead, showing that his sacrifice was accepted and now God calls everyone everywhere through the preaching and the teaching and through the church to repent of sin and believe in Jesus. The crowd was astonished and praised him. What will be your response today? Will you confess your, your, your sin? Will you confess your need of a Savior? Will you confess that the greatest trouble, the greatest 
uh, issue, the biggest problem is our sin. Now, I don't want to diminish this man's suffering, for he suffered as a paralytic, I'm sure. But each one of us who deals with unforgiven guilt suffers in some degree like this. Nothing paralyzes people more than guilt that has not been forgiven. And maybe you can identify with that this morning. If you're suffering from this kind of paralysis, this text tells us what to do. That guilt can be taken away, sin can be forgiven, and you can be cleansed and washed in the blood of Jesus if you only just trust Him and turn to Him. And maybe you're here this morning and you're dealing with guilt. You're dealing with unforgiveness. Christ is the antidote. Let's, let's, let, listen, let, let's, not, let's look beyond cop, Captain Obvious, okay? And recognize how deep, 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 great and immediate problem is our sin. And Jesus offers that forgiveness to you. If you, like this man, will put your faith and trust in him today. Will you? And maybe you're here and you're a Christ follower and maybe, you know what? I need to go a little bit deeper. Do you have compassion for broken people? Hurting people? Are you, are you committed to do whatever it takes to bring people and introduce them to Jesus? Are you confident that Christ can make all things new? As the band comes up and we get ready for communion, think about this passage. Think about, think about the bread on this table symbolizing his broken body. The cup representing the blood that he shed on the cross. That's why Jesus can offer forgiveness because he knows the cross is coming. And it is on the cross where Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. And he offers us this morning forgiveness of sins. No matter where you are, no matter what you've done, cleansing power of of the uh, cleansing work uh, that he cleansed the leper. And now as he sees this paralytic man who who thinks all I need is the healing. And Jesus says, no, you need your sins forgiven first. So as we partake of communion together, let's remember the work of Christ. The cleansing, powerful work of Christ. The work of forgiveness. Body repre- uh, bread represents his body, the blood, the cup. And if you're a Christ follower, we invite you as the band plays, we invite you to come down the center aisle, uh, no, excuse me, these two aisles, grab an element and sit down if you're a Christ follower, and then pray. Confess your sin, repent of your sin, and celebrate the Lord's Supper, the communion, the work of Jesus. If you're not a Christ follower, this table is for Christ followers. Not a king's table, it's not a Baptist table, it's not a Presbyterian table. It, it is the table for Christians. If you're not a believer, we're glad you're here. We love you. We want to talk with you. And now we want you to turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. I make no qualms about it. We want you to have eternal life and have your sins forgiven. But this table is for believers. The band's going to play. You're going to come up, get your elements, go back to your seat, wait. And then I'll come up and lead us through the partaking of the bread and of the cup together. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that you have provided a way of salvation. You have provided a way that our sins can be forgiven. You provided a way for our greatest, most, most immediate problem we have, and that is our sin. No matter what happens in this life, does not compare to eternity without you in hell after this life. So God, we pray for everyone in this room. And maybe there's someone here today, right now, that you need to trust Christ 
Recognize your sin, recognize him as a savior, acknowledge your rebellion, and trust Jesus that he died on the cross for your sins. And this will be the first day that you take communion as a follower of Christ. God, we pray that you would work in the hearts of everyone here. And those who have not known you will come to know you. And God, we pray for your church, that we'd be encouraged by this passage, that we'd be strengthened and confident in all that Christ has done on our behalf. And the work of the cross, the finality of it is finished, the empty tomb and the promise and the hope that we have in the work of Jesus, his perfect life, his brutal atoning sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. So God, help us to worship you as we partake of these elements and remembering the cross and celebrating your forgiveness. God, be with us. Draw us closer to Jesus, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.